Now, uh, allow me to introduce, as I have the privilege of introducing, Reverend Miller Ansel, who serves the Lord in Waco and will bless us as he has for many years past by giving us the word of God. Bring us to Christ, brother. Always glad to be at CCPC, uh, especially back again this evening. So let us return uh, to the scriptures, to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Says the infallible word of God. Please give it your full attention as it is read. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call... To the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. This shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Having heard the prayer of illumination, we will embark upon the sermon uh, Hosea 11, 1 through 11, would make a, an excellent passage uh, for like a, a Father's Day or a, a Father's Conference uh, matter. There's a lot here to dwell upon, and uh, though we're not really going to do that, it is worth taking into account for those who are fathers and those who long to be fathers, how it is we are to image our fatherness as Christians Upon the Lord God. Because what we see, and here are four points for the evening. One, the good father, the heavenly father, loves his children by remembering them. One that tells us a father is involved in his children's lives. A father is involved in their growing up, in their providing for them. In their bandaging their wounds and healing them and guiding them along the path that they ought to go. Secondly, we'll see that the good father disciplines 
his children. Uh, does not overly discipline them to exasperate them, um, but does discipline rather than not disciplining at all and letting them go about their own way. The good father restrains his children so that they are given a, an amount of freedom, but not so much that they ruin their lives. Thirdly, we'll see that the good father sympathizes with his children. He enters into what it is to to be in this sinful world and loves his children and does not give up on them. As when many of us might have given up on our own children or as Hosea prophesies on our own spouses, the good heavenly father loves us so much it is impossible for him to give up on us. He sympathizes with us. And therefore, our fourth point, he longs to restore us and he draws back to himself. He will restore his people to himself. He takes it upon himself to do so by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the son that Israel could never be, to be the son that the church could never be, that you and I could never be. And so there's incredible imagery that the Holy Spirit uses here showcasing Jesus Christ as the ultimate Israel and Son of God to to be in place of the fallible, sinful Israel of the past, which is also who we are. But let us begin. Uh, The Father remembers. The good Father, the loving Father, remembers his children, verses 1 through 4. This is a section of Hosea. There's a lot of nostalgia going on. Uh, In the previous chapter, it was all very negative. Um, He remembers how evil Israel, his son, has been. Uh, But here, he recalls the good times. When Israel was young in Egypt, when the father set his love upon this, this worthless people, this people who were enslaved to the Egyptians, but he set his love upon them and calls them out of their bondage in Israel. This is the great redemptive event in Old Testament history. The Exodus, the picture of those who were in bondage to sin, but the Lord sets his love and his pleasure upon them to free them. Not because there's anything good in them. There is nothing good in Israel. There's nothing good in us. But yet God has set his pleasure upon us to redeem us because he has decided to love us. And so the father calls them out of Egypt. And right away in God's remembrance, as as he recalls these infancy days of Israel, and as as Hosea's prophesying to Israel, they too ought to be, they're not, but they ought to be themselves recalling their own days as infants in the faith, as infants, as a young church. And the idea, and this is the theme throughout Hosea, right? You've been backsliding. You have not been loving the Lord. Come back, O child of God. And let me give you the motive for coming back and living as a child of God because I have redeemed you and sought you. This is the call from Hosea. Remember your redemption and live it out according to scripture. Us as well. We are called to this. Remember your past. Remember God's grace to you, to me, his power, his provision in our own lives. 
the way that he has sent his son to atone for our sins. That's that picture of the exodus. Christ has freed you. God has freed you. You have been redeemed. That is enough. Because they don't obey, ultimately we'll see that it is Christ who was called out of Israel on their behalf. But this is what moves us, ought to move us, and ought to have moved Israel to gratitude. At this juncture, though, in Hosea 11, Israel is looking forward to the Messiah who would save them. They know their history. Uh, they're hearing it again from Hosea. They've heard it uh, for much of their lives, how God rescued them from the Egyptians, has provided for them and given them life in the promised land, right? They are still at this point in the promised land, though exile is coming. But how does Israel respond to this redemption, to their history? They spurn God's love. They do the opposite of everything we would expect. Here is the one who has freed you from the slavery of sin, and you have spurned the love of that one. Instead, you have learned to sacrifice to the Baals. You have learned to burn incense to carved images. We have here a good father, but a rebellious child. As you think back to the Exodus event, God the Father has provided for his son. He has provided freedom. He has held back the oppressors of his children. He has warned them against error, right? He's giving them their word. He is training them in godliness. He is restoring them to himself. He's guiding them spiritually, even physically, to the promised land. How he alleviated hardships, provided food, clothing, and shelter for them. The Lord did all this for God's people in freeing them in the exodus. And what is their response? Ingratitude. How wicked is their ingratitude? The benevolent father gives all, but it's not enough for Israel. Rather than heed the call of God, they seek the call of the spiritual adulteress, the strange gods that they never should have known. Ultimately, as Israel continued along their path, and as we get to Hosea, I mean, we're reaching the end, uh, their exile is about to come. It's because they have reached out to gods that they have never known and gave the, the gratitude to their idols that they should have been giving to the true God. Nevertheless, we continue. Believe into verse 2. The good father continues to remember Israel's childhood. How the good father taught Israel to walk, took him by the arm to help him along, healed him. I mean, how real is this in our own lives? The good father, even in our own children's lives, he, he teaches his toddler how to walk. He takes the toddler by the hand. You can picture a good father today teaching his kid to walk outside and the, the child falls and scrapes his knee and it's bleeding. The good father heals him, right? He, he picks him up and, and washes off the wound, puts some Neosporin on a uh, Paw Patrol Band-Aid. Right? That's what the kids are into. And he heals the child. And it's wild watching it. We go, it's so obvious. Who has just healed you? Who has done all of this? Your father. But yet here is Israel knowing all of this. That it is their father who has healed them. And they refuse to acknowledge the obvious. It's right before their eyes. What great sin. 
in Israel to refuse to acknowledge their father and to give the Baals credit. And we sit here and we think, and we hear that illustration and we go, how silly. Israel, let's put it lightly, how silly. It's God who has saved you. It's quite clear. He is the one who has healed you, guided you. Give him the glory, Israel. What are you doing? But how often are we ungrateful? How often do we not acknowledge the Lord? How often do we give credit to our accomplishments to ourselves? Or even do we give uh, our, the, the, the gratitude of our standing to another? We do it quite often. Praise God. He does not allow us to continue in that way. He is a good father. Rather than letting us go about in this uh, self-deception of denying who the true God is and serving idols. Instead, we see in verse 4, he draws us back gently with the cords of love. It's in verse 4 that the imagery switches from a father to a child to an animal. An animal that the Lord loves. He stoops to feed and care for. He lovingly harnesses the animal to prevent it from going its own way. I think we can relate to this. You might not know this. The world's greatest husky happens to live in our home. Boris, a.k.a. Bobo. And I think Bobo likes it there. I think he loves us. We love him. But if we took Boris to the park, unleashed, something is going to catch his eye, and he's going to run off. A scent will catch his nose, and that dog is gone. It is out of love that we leash him, that we draw him back with cords, right? The times he's gotten out of the fence, right? Classic escape artist. The time he gets out of the fence, he runs around in the street as if the cars can't hurt him. He needs to be fenced. He needs to be leashed. He needs to be drawn back out of love. That's the image in verse 4. The church, the Christian, you and I, or like this wild animal that will run after sin, but our God lovingly leashes us and draws us back so that we do not endanger ourselves. He is the loving Father that restrains us so that we do not sin to the point of losing his love, so that we do not sin to the point of losing his salvation, or losing our salvation. That is to say, as rebellious children as we are, our loving Father will never give up on us. And he will continue to leash us, to harness us, to draw us back to himself. He will not give up on his people. And so we see first, our good Heavenly Father remembers. He remembers Israel in his infancy, in his toddler years, and the love that he has for him. It is a true unconditional love that will never end. Even though the church today sins, and even though the church today is not faithful, our Father will always be faithful. However, the faithful, loving Father must discipline. Our second point, the loving Father disciplines, verses 5 through 7. As all good fathers must discipline their children, so does our Heavenly Father. 
And this has now been years that Israel has refused to repent, and he must be disciplined. He has sinned greatly in his idolatry. He will be exiled. This is part of his discipline. It cannot be stopped. What Egypt has been in the past, so Assyria will become in the future a place of bondage. Furthermore, the Lord will discipline through Assyria as a means, raging against Israelite cities and devouring their districts. And we read in verse 7, God says, My people are bent on backsliding from me. What does this mean, backsliding? Backsliding. These people are such that have relied on their own counsels. The Lord says this in, in Hosea 11. They have relied on their own counsels, their own plans. They have left the ways of God and indulged the ways of sin to their own soul's harm. Over the years, Israel has become like an addict. and They're addicted to idolatry. And they can't see the grip that idolatry has upon them. But if they are to be saved, they must admit their addiction. And in order to get them to admit, the Lord disciplines them. And as he does, he disciplines them with more sin. And it has caused them to go astray from their merciful father. Backsliding is not just a problem in ancient Israel. Backsliding continues to be a problem amongst Christians today. We know what it is. Perhaps we've experienced it ourselves. A person indulges in a sin, maybe a specific sin, for a number of time. Their hearts are hardened. And they find themselves in love more and more with this sin. They find themselves less and less interested in prayer, in Bible reading, in church attendance. They find themselves adhering to unsound doctrine and having a love for the world and a neglect for their heavenly father. The backslider can become, uh, their heart can become in a hardened state that must be awakened, that must be convicted. They must be exhorted to cease their sinning and return to the Lord. You think of Nathan with David, how he convicted David, how Hosea is trying to convict Israel. It's a reminder of sin, a reminder of its consequences, but also the hope of heaven that is awaiting those who are willing to admit their conviction and to stop their backsliding. The backslider upon conviction will recognize how miserable and hopeless their indulgence and iniquity has been. They will become restless until they repent and return to the Lord. There's a great difference here between the backslider and the false convert. When we seek to convict convict the, the backslider, they will eventually repent and return to God. The false convert, though, when you seek to convict them of their sin, of course they say, don't, this isn't any of your business, leave me alone. They will not return to the Lord for they do not know the Lord, but the backslider will become convicted and convinced. And Israel is working toward that. At this point in uh, redemptive history. And what do we do with a backslider? Once we have come to them and uh, convicted and convinced them of their sin. Where do we take them? Uh, To the whipping post? You've been so bad. 
Rather, we take them to the cross. The convicted backslider must go to the place of the pierced Savior. They must mourn their sin. They must go to the cross where their sin of backsliding has held their Savior to the wood. And they must know that Jesus' blood heals the backslider. Brother and sister, if you're here today and you see yourself in this description of the backslider, do not delay in coming to the cross. Come this moment. Be restored to the good Father. Find forgiveness in the blood of Jesus and return to your first love, not the love of idolatry and the love of sin. Return to the love of God. And I would also exhort you in the midst of this, find a friend. Particularly, find a friend in the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter backslid. The one who denied Christ not once, not twice. Three times he denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did he do? He remembered the word of the Lord. He was brought to the cross. He wept for his sin. He was forgiven by Jesus. He returned to his first love and he lived for him. Such is what Israel's called to do throughout the book of Hosea. This is the entirety of the book. Hosea is pleading with Israel, stop your backsliding. Repent. Come back to the, to the cross, the Messiah to come and restore the joy of salvation. Israel would be restored. But in the meantime, the loving father disciplines them to awaken them, to shock them out of their sinful slumber. But even in the midst of such discipline, God will not give up on his child. He will not utterly destroy them or turn away from them. Verses 8 and 9 show the loving father's sympathy. The father sympathizes and vows to continue to have merciful love for Israel. This would be in contrast to how man would act. He says in verse 9, For I am God and not a man. Well, what does that mean? It's perhaps worth a laugh to, to let you in on the commentaries where the, the feminists want to point out that God is a mother. He is not a man. And that God hates man's, you know, the, the biological male's ways. Uh, I think reading this in context, it's pretty clear that's not what's in view. Um, although we can chuckle. Um, but rather, what is in view? I am God and not a man. It is, and as you recall, the, the prophecy of Hosea, he doesn't act the way a man would act, the way mankind, humanity would act. You recall the first few chapters. What's happening? Hosea is sent to marry a harlot who would repeatedly commit adultery. She would also run away from him and desert him. And I think uh, even as a pastor, in many of our sessions would counsel Hosea it might be time for divorce. Your wife is unrepentant and she continues to leave you. And that might be good counsel. But God is not a man. Here even the analogy changes to a father and a child. We might think the child who is constantly rebellious that you just long to send them to military school. Or at least pray for the day when they are out of the house. 
But that is not God. He is not a man. He's not like us. He's infinite in patience, infinite in mercy and grace. He is infinite in love. He will not give up on his rebellious children. He will bring his church back to him. The great love of the sympathetic father to his children is portrayed in really deep emotional turmoil. This section, verses 8 and 9, you can see that it might make sense to destroy Israel. Israel deserves it, but he cannot give up on her. He has a covenantal steadfast love for her. He cannot terrorize his own rebellious son. He will not give up on Israel. He will not burn them down as he did Adma and Zeboim. You remember Adma and Zeboim. Uh, often forgotten cities. These were cities of the plain that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Rebellious cities who were not children of God, but children of Satan. And he cannot give up on his child, but he can judge those who are not his child, like Adma, Zeboim, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Upon them, his wrath, his righteous wrath, was poured out, but he will not pour it out upon his church. What is all this to show Israel? As Hosea showcases the Lord's emotional turmoil in dealing with them. As Israel hears these words from Hosea, they ought to be seeing the dilemma they have put their loving father in. They have acted wrongly. They have rebelled against their God. Justice must be worked out. It cannot be just forgotten. It cannot be downplayed. There must be justice. But justice for sin demands death. Justice for sin demands death. We can, we can ask Adma and Zeboim about that. But here the father sympathizes. He does not long to destroy his child. And as we'll see in a moment, he will restore them through the gospel, the death of his perfect son. Let's say grace is not cheap. It costs life. If God is to have grace upon Israel, this rebellious child, it isn't just brushing it aside. It costs blood. It costs the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of disobedient Israel. Which brings us to our fourth point, the restoration. The good father restores uh, himself to his children in verses 10 and 11. It's somewhat a comical scene. Here the Lord is a roaring lion, and the Christians, these Old Testament Christians in Israel, are like birds. They're birds out there that are uh, in the pasture, unaware that a lion is there. And here comes the roar of the Lord, and the birds are made aware and come trembling before the lion. This is the lion's roar of the gospel to restore the people of God to himself. The people will hear it. They will no longer be silly birds. Previously in Hosea, uh, Israel is considered a silly dove who's just flittering about between foreign alliance, foreign alliance. Oh, who's going to work out? Because they're missing the important part that they need a spiritual alliance with the Lord. They were called a silly dove 
wandering about. No longer. They are birds that are coming before the great lion. Coming, trembling, recognizing that their sin is great. But they fear the Lord. But they revere him as a loving father. This illustration in these two verses shows how restoration is solely by divine achievement. And the only proper response by Israel is to accept it. That if Israel were left to himself, he would continue down that foolish path, right? If Israel were not restrained, he would have continued in Baalish idolatry, continued in adultery, murder, theft, lying. But when the gospel roar goes out to God's people, it cannot be ignored. It's the, it's the sound, the roaring that awakens the backslider from their sleep. It awakens them to remember, my father loves me and I will return to him. And they come trembling before him, admitting their sin, partaking in this great mercy that he, he, he gives and showers upon them. And they are restored to their loving father. How does that work though? What is this gospel roar that goes forth? It's the Messiah. For Israel and and Hosea, it's the Messiah to come. To be the perfect Israel that they are not. For us, it's the Messiah who has come. Again, to be the perfect spiritual Israel that we are not. What is this to say? Well, uh, Hosea... 11, we see uh, the great prophecy that out of Egypt I called my son. And we also read from Matthew 2, uh, who also, you know, the same author that wrote Hosea wrote Matthew, that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now interprets Hosea 11 for us and says this was ultimately about Jesus Christ. How does this work? And it's really a bigger picture of how Jesus Christ is the perfect son of God, the perfect Israel. So let's consider as we conclude the similarities between Israel and Jesus. It's quite interesting. It is Jacob in Genesis 46 uh, who brings his family, that is Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, who brings his family to Egypt. Why does he do so? There is famine in the land and he must save the lives of his family. So he brings them into Israel where his son Joseph is. Likewise, it is to preserve life that we find uh, the newborn babe, Jesus Christ, being taken to Egypt in order to preserve his life uh, by his parents, Mary and Joseph. So they flee to Egypt. Also along the way, we can note a number of similarities again. Um, The Lord provides for the lives of his people as they flee to Egypt. He gives them the grain to do so. Uh, We think of the wise men who brought gifts. Surely some of those gifts were used to, to, to buy food, to buy shelter as the Lord entered Egypt. And they spend their time there, but they must be called out. Old Testament Israel must be called out. And our Lord and Savior, according to the prophecy of Hosea 11.1, 1, must be called out of Egypt. And so they are. We can note that Egypt or Israel is brought out of Egypt. They pass through a, a certain baptism 
and the Red Sea. They are sent out into the wilderness and to be brought into the promised land. Likewise, we find the Son of God as he comes out of Egypt. He goes not through the Red Sea, but through the Jordan River in his baptism and then is driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness, just like Old Testament Israel to be tempted by the Lord. Well, in the Old Testament, what does Israel do in temptation? We've heard it. We know it. They gave in. They worshipped the Baals. But our, our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not worship the Baals. They would not destroy him. It is here, really, we have sort of the pitting of the rebellious son of Old Testament Israel against the obedient son of Jesus Christ. Everything that Israel was supposed to be, that they even resolved to obey in the Lord and follow his law, they did not do. But Jesus Christ, the perfect Israel, the perfect son of God, does. The one called out of Egypt, the one called to live the perfect life, the greater perfect Israel who fulfills all that Old Testament Israel could not do. And through that is where we, we, we find our liberation from spiritual bondage ourselves. Those of us who are tempted like Israel, as we are rebellious children committing idolatry, adultery, murder in our hearts and our words, the theft that we have done, we find hope in the perfect Israel because we have been in bondage to sin and need to be freed. And so Christ is set forth as the perfect child, the perfect son of Israel to restore us on our behalf, doing all that we could not do. Out of Egypt, he is called. Out of the house of slavery, so that we too may be called out of that house. And so we see here, then, this is how the Father restores us to himself. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this great love that you have showered upon your children, the mercy and the grace as we see ourselves in Old Testament Israel. As we see our own sinfulness and our own idolatry, how we have long to gone away from you. We are grateful that you have um, put your gentle cords upon us and leashed us so that we do not run off into our own eternal doom. But rather you have sent Christ, the perfect Israel, to save us from such doom. That we may be restored to you and know what it is to have a loving father. A father who does not give up on us when we would have given up on ourselves certainly long ago. So we ask that we may know this love this evening. We ask that we would be comforted by it tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.